Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Fearless Paranoia podcast where we are demystifying the complex world of cybersecurity. I'm Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. And I'm Ryan, I'm a cybersecurity architect. And want to apologize to everybody for what is yet another version of the sound of my voice, courtesy of whatever illness I managed to catch from one of my kids this past week. Today, we're actually going to be returning to a subject we talked about late last year, 23andMe. 23andMe is, as most of you probably know, one of those companies that will ask you to send them some of your spit and then tell you where your spit is from, or more accurately tell you where other people who have similar spit as you currently live in the world. Obviously, they were the victim, rather, they were the target of a massive cyber attack. They were the platform that these hackers decided to go after through a massive credential stuffing attack. There is a lot of debate in the cybersecurity world who is responsible for attacks like this. Now, on one hand, individual users have to use passwords and login credentials that are reasonably and effectively secure. That's why you're supposed to put in a unique password. That's why you're supposed to put in a strong password and you're supposed to put in a password you haven't used before. The last being the most critically operative in a situation like this, because when you have used the same password in multiple places, if it gets stolen in one spot, it can be reused in another spot. There's also some debate on the other side saying, well, companies need to put things in place to prevent credential stuffing from being particularly easy. Now, some do argue that this is babying, that is unnecessary, that they put in warnings and recommendations for use of passwords that are of a certain strength. They tell users not to reuse passwords, on and on and on. Well, 23andMe actually took that one a bit further than I've seen in the recent past in response to a class action lawsuit filed against them. In this class action, more than 100 victims that is, individual users of 23andMe, have accused 23andMe of violating various state laws, including the California Privacy Rights Act, which is the CPRA. Basically, what it does is it says that businesses that collect sensitive data must provide reasonable security procedures to protect that data, to prevent it from being shared. But given how new the law is, it is still fairly vague, and a lot of the regulations that are going to be enforcing them haven't been written yet. So, in response to this lawsuit, 23andMe wrote a letter and essentially said that users who negligently recycled and failed to update passwords following past security incidents were actually the ones to blame and that it was not a result of any failure of 23andMe's security or failure to maintain reasonable security and said, and I'm going to quote directly from the letter here, the incident was a result of users' failure to safeguard their own account credentials for which 23andMe bears no responsibility. I have a lot of responses to that particular argument, but I'm going to hand this immediate response over to our actual cybersecurity expert who I think has some of his own thoughts about this and it's probably actually more nuanced than mine. So Ryan, what were your thoughts when you heard or read these comments? So before the letter came out, I was a bit torn. I was kind of sitting firmly on the line in between both sides saying, I think it was a shared responsibility model. I think that the users certainly do bear some fault. I think that people have known for a long time now that cyber incidents are on the rise, that identity is a major attack vector. I think even the most ignorant of users have heard at this point that 
it is important to not use the same password on multiple sites, especially if you care about what's going on at those sites. And so I think that's pretty commonplace nowadays. So the fact that people still do it does show a little bit of negligence. And so I think that negligence does warrant some level of shared blame. But at the same point in time, too, where I was with 23andMe initially is that they did offer means to further protect those accounts. They offer the ability for you to choose your own strong password. They provide guidance uh, in their terms and conditions to do so. They say in there, do not reuse passwords. That's pretty blanket in most of those terms nowadays. They offered multi-factor. They didn't enforce it. And that's a key point that I'll come back to in a minute, but they did offer it. However, they, like a lot of companies, don't enforce it because they're trying to provide a balance between usability and a clean user experience. Now, they know that most of the people that jump into services like 23andMe that are just like genuinely curious tend to not necessarily be the most tech savvy of users. They're not jumping onto like a highly technical forum or something else where it's a lot more easy and the user experience is not as big of a concern with more highly technical users where you can enforce things like MFA and the users are just kind of willing to accept it more readily. I think they were doing their best to try to balance the user experience versus the usability of their site. So again, I think that to their point, they could have gone further. And I think that knowing that credential stuffing attacks are on the rise and have been for years and and knowing the type of data and the level of data that they hold, I think it was really important that they should have taken the next step and really enforced MFA and said, hey, we understand that this is going to slightly degrade the login experience for some users, but this is in your best interest. And we're doing it because we absolutely care about protecting your identity, protecting the data that we hold of yours. And I think that that shows a certain level of maturity and responsibility that 23andMe elected to walk away from in favor of tipping the balance towards user experience. So I think that initially I was on the fence again between these two sides. Ever since the letter came out, <laughs> I think that 23andMe's attorneys convinced me very well that their negligence <laughs> should be brought front and center and it should be highlighted and it should be identified. And I think a lot of the security community has kind of leaned that way. I think that we've taken the seesaw, you know, the ever-present scale or the proverbial scale of justice, and we've seen this tip like pretty heavily in favor of the fact that users should have been protected in this case. I think that when we start to compare this to other services that are out there that have made similar user experience adjustments or have made considerations in favor of security as opposed to user experience, like say Microsoft in the last year, Microsoft enforced on all of their accounts, Outlook.com, Hotmail, all the standard Microsoft accounts, they enforced MFA. And within 60 to 90 days, they saw 100% acceptance on all accounts. MFA fully enrolled, users not having issues using the services. They've seen a huge drastic reduction in credential stuffing efficiency of attacks. They've seen a huge reduction in fake account generation. They've seen all sorts of major security benefits from taking this one small step to really protect user accounts. So I think that when you have a company that is as ubiquitous as Microsoft now, that's able to do it and to do it cleanly, that there's really not a whole lot of room left anymore for any of these other companies who offer the service 
to not put it into an enforcement mode to protect their users. So really, I think that especially, and the letter was just like the nail in the coffin. The letter absolutely just turned it around and said that we are going to shed ourselves of all responsibility, which to me was absolutely careless. And it shows a complete disregard for their users, for the level of data that they keep, and for the severity of what happened. And I would sure hope that at some point in the future here that they're going to take this a lot more seriously and really enforce MFA to kind of protect themselves and their users going forward. In fair going back, they have apparently made some updates to their security procedures. Now, this is interesting because in the law, this is what's defined as subsequent remedial measures. That's an evidentiary rule that says that in a negligence case, you're not allowed to bring in as evidence of negligence something that someone did after the fact in order to fix a problem. And the whole idea is, generally speaking, they want to encourage people, even after a negligent conduct, they want to encourage people to take those next subsequent steps that are after the fact, but they do improve security going forward. As long as those measures aren't evidence of being aware that they should have done this before, you're not going to be able to use that against them. So I do applaud 23andMe for at least taking that initial step. But there's two other aspects of this letter that I want to get into. The first being the credential stuffing attack affected something like 14,000 accounts. But the actual data breach affected something like seven or eight million accounts. This is something we're going to get into in a little bit here on what happens when data is stolen from people. But Ryan, what's your take on this notion that 23andMe should somehow not be responsible for making the data of millions accessible to hackers who only needed to breach a couple thousand accounts to to get it. So again, it's a tough one, right? When you consider the fact that really it was only 14,000 accounts that were impacted directly, it makes it look like a relatively small issue. But behind the scenes, when you are a data aggregator and you are pulling together this much data and you are building these relationships between this data, that's an important enough data set on its own that if you don't secure that properly, that's a big problem. When you take a data set like that, and there's a lot of data aggregators in the world, but most of them maintain their data privately and they use it for private purposes, marketing and other things. When you take this data set and you start to make this available to your users, you kind of have a downstream responsibility to protect that data knowing what the users could do with the level of access that you've provided them. So realistically, any sort of decently security conscious company out there nowadays does red team style attacks where you are going to try to impact your company in the same ways that a threat actor would and try to gain access to the same things that a threat actor would. It would have taken very little effort for 23andMe to employ some sort of similar activity or exercise to have somebody identify not just how trivial it is to get into an account with a weak password, but to see what kind of data and what type of connections and relationships to other data that there were sitting behind that veil once they've purged that perimeter. And so once they've identified those connections, that really bumps up their need to provide security to the users and the data. Again, I'm firmly in the stance at this point that every single person that I know and every person that I'm related to that starts talking about employing a service like 23andMe, I would actively do my best to try to turn them away from something like that now because of the fact that not only just because of what the data behind it could do, but because the practices that they have show that they're just not interested 
interested in taking the steps necessary to protect you as a consumer, as a user, and as a partner, effectively, of them, right? I mean, you're a partner. There's your, You're signing up for their service. They're offering a service back to you. That's supposed to be a partnership. They're not a good partner. They're not even coming to meet you halfway in the middle when it comes to the point of security. And so until they start to really take more responsibility in the security space, to me as a company, they are still borderline laughable at this point, and they should be really considered as such. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. So you mentioned a couple of things there that I think are pretty important. Like on one level, 23andMe, as a customer, you become, well, I'm going to go back to something else. There's kind of a trope in the privacy field talking about things like consumer rating agencies that, you know, when you're dealing with Experian or TransUnion or whatever, you have to realize that you are not their customer. You are their product. With 23andMe, it's a combination because you are their customer. You pay for their service, but you become their product. And this idea of downstream liability has to apply when the people who are impacted are dramatically in excess of the people who may be somewhat negligent. Now, I do want to come back in a minute to this notion of one entity having all of this information and having gotten it from places other than just the primary user, the individual. But there's one thing I have to raise here. This is something that as soon as I read it, it made the proverbial steam shooting out of my ears. In the letter, 23andMe argued that the majority of users impact were not harmed. Now, this is specifically saying, and in fairness, I will say, they are talking about pecuniary harm, which means direct financial harm. But the overall theme of the letter indicated that the 23andMe attorneys did not believe that there was any harm other than pecuniary harm either, that their only concern was about whether or not you were financially impacted. They said, it profile information that may have been accessed related to the DNA relatives feature could not have been used to cause pecuniary harm because it did not include users' social security numbers, driver's license numbers, or any payment or financial information. As a privacy attorney, I can tell you, there are so many more pieces of information about you that can be used to harm you than just your financial information. But my knowledge of that information pales in comparison to yours, Ryan. Let's talk a minute about why it is so, I mean, I could say myopic also in terms of what matters now might be slightly different than what matters in the future. But this notion that the only thing that was taken that could cause damage is something that could harm you financially directly is just counter to what we know, isn't it? Well, I mean, let's just start with the data set in and of itself, right? So heck, let's take one step further back. So even before the data set, the first thing that they're doing is they're taking all these different data sets and they're building relationships between them. So that's the biggest key, right? Is they're building this big web, this interconnected set of relationships between these different data sets, which means they are tying different users together and different people together. People by nature use information about their relationships for a variety of things throughout the regular daily life. They use it to generate passwords. Who do you know in the past 20, 30 years hasn't had their kid's name, their dog's name, something else as a password? Or better yet, you start to see people that use bad passwords and bad credentials and bad practices. Those things are usually learned habits. 
And so in a lot of cases, you're going to find out somebody like me who uses pretty complex passwords just because of the nature of the field that I'm in. You're going to see that the people around me start to follow some of those same practices because they listen to me talk. They understand the nature of those things because just by nature of my teaching to them, my speaking to them, whatever, they've understood the importance and the relevance of following those types of practices. But if you take someone that's got something that's very weak, what's to make you think that maybe somebody closely related to them wouldn't also have similar bad practices? So now you can start to follow those chains of relationships through similar weaknesses right into other areas and directly impact other people through those means. To go beyond that, let's say you are a social engineer and let's say you want to try to take advantage of somebody, exploit somebody, blackmail somebody, extort somebody, etc., a good way to do that is by attacking familial ties. One of the biggest scams out there right now is people will call up elderly folks who are less familiar with the internet, less familiar with these scams and what's going on and say, we have your granddaughter or we've taken your son's information. Give us $5,000 and nothing will happen to him. And the first thing they do is go into protective mode and go into, oh no, I need to protect my family and we'll break out the credit card. So even stuff like this could turn into tying together certain people to other people in a way that could turn into uh, downstream extortion attacks or or any other social engineering attacks that might be associated like that. Criminals are getting really, really devious nowadays in how they go about these things. And all this is before we even talk about the data sets. We're starting to get into a world now where things like DNA is being used for a whole variety of new things, new medical technologies. It's being used for things like biometrics. It's being used for identification. It's being used to hunt out new medical innovations. In theory, it could be even used for things like future targeted bio warfare. It could be used for things like maybe eventually someday cracking through biometrics by being able to take DNA and using that to reverse engineer some of those methods. Who even knows if we don't start turning DNA into one of the future security mechanisms that we use to protect data and protect systems. Well, if we do that, these companies have already exposed all of that, so we might as well just throw away that option at this point because now all that data could already be sitting out there, readily available for the future hackers, crackers, cryptographers of the world to start reverse engineering that data set, which means it's effectively worthless for any sort of major security use going forward. I mean, I could go on for a long time, but there's a lot of value in the data and just as importantly in the relationships that they have built at 23andMe, where it might be really easy for them very topically to say, yes, there was no direct financial harm caused as a result of this particular incident. And that's a very nice legal way of trying to protect your business and cover your bases, but it does not accurately describe the full extent of the problems and the fact that they're not being openly transparent here, where a lot of other... There's been a lot of companies that have also been similarly vague in dealing with their incidents, but there's been a lot of companies now that have been just cleanly transparent about what has happened, what the fallout is, what people need to do to protect themselves, and I think that 23andMe really missed a golden opportunity here to really do well by their users and to really mature in their practices and their stewardship of data and their just security posture going forward and just flat drop the ball. 
You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. I definitely agree with you and that they've missed an opportunity here. And one of the things that I want to touch on, and this is sort of returning to what we talked about before. So in 2016, Cambridge Analytica, the large data company that offered their services and conducted activities on behalf of several different political organizations, advertised to their customers that they had 8,000 data points on every single U.S. voter. And those data points helped to identify not just who was living where and how much money they made and who may have been connected with who, but how they were likely to vote and what factors might influence them to A, change their vote, or B, and was apparently more important at the time, not vote. And that was just what they had available at the time. And one of the big issues in this whole data collection debate has been whose data gets collected, when, by whom. So one big debate at the time was how Facebook was collecting data on people who weren't actually account holders. If you were in a photograph uploaded to Facebook, Facebook was essentially taking that data. That has been exploited by many companies, one of them, the most prominent being Clearview, the facial recognition company. I'm going to call them the happily and openly sketchy and very dystopian facial recognition companies. They scrape these photographs. And even if you have not given consent for your photograph to be on a site where it is was scraped from, they claim that it's in the public domain because it's public and therefore they have a right to it. So who collects your data and how is really important because, again, as we see here, a person could be negligent with their password, but because a company was maybe careless, maybe actually negligent, legally responsible, failed to prevent your information from being taken, this issue becomes a massive one for everyone involved. And this is where I kind of bring it full circle to this idea of what we have to deal with with these data brokers now. Because in 2014, the FTC did a whole report on data brokers. Most data brokers got most of their information from other data brokers. To me, that is the information information version of money laundering. Because once your data gets passed in data sets through a few different intermediaries, it gets more and more difficult to be able to say for certain where that data originated. Now, you also have those shady organizations like Cambridge Analytica who didn't really discriminate one way or the other between legitimate and illegitimate sources of your data. So they will source from the dark web to learn more about you. And what does that really mean? Because now you can have 8,000 data points and how many physical addresses and car registrations and email addresses and educational records can you have? Well, no one for the most part had your DNA. This is new data to the field. So the idea that 23andMe could turn around and suggest, and I will admit suggest in a way that is in itself probably not incorrect, but it's also not correct. There may not be any direct pecuniary harm because most people's financial information was not taken because their accounts were not breached. But now their information, information that probably was not actually available anywhere on the dark web, now is. Which means eventually that data will make its way into quasi-legitimate or legitimate data brokers, potentially through no ill conduct, and this information that is entirely new to the ecosystem that you can never get back and that you cannot change is now permanently a part of your file. That's where my biggest concern is. Is that the right place to put my concern? 
No, absolutely. There's no other way to really look at this without blurring the lines a lot more. You're absolutely right that this information, if it's not already on the dark web, will certainly be on the dark web. It's going to go for sale because everything goes for sale. Everything's got a price, especially when you get out to those leak sites on the dark web. These data brokers will go out there and will purchase the data from the dark web to get a copy of it to put it into their data sets because that's going to be the easiest way for them to get that data. If they can't get it legally through purchasing it through some sort of agreement that's binding through 23andMe directly, now they've got another avenue to go and procure this data. And that actually causes a couple of problems. Not only does it add the data to those data sets, but it legitimizes the way that the data was retrieved in the first yep. place by mm -hmm. paying the people that are going out and using these bad methods to go and get a hold of this data. So now you've got multiple people that are complicit in this. You've got 23andMe who put, in 2024, poor security practices in place to protect a really important data set. You've now got bad actors who have understood the fact that there are companies that poorly protect data, who have put it out for sale, who have now profited from the sale, data brokers who are purchasing ill-gotten data from dark websites supporting these bad actors and their practices. Whether they know or not, they're likely eventually to end up buying these data sets. Right. And then turning around and then aggregating these data sets to do what? To profit from them. To turn around and to sell these to other companies that would use them for whatever variety of services, intelligence, trading, etc. Whatever they want to use it for. And you made a really important point. Unlike a lot of your other data, if somebody gets my address and I'm really concerned about that, I can move or I can get a P.O. box and I can mask that address. If somebody gets my phone number, I can go grab a new phone number and get a new one from the phone company. Even with like a social security number, it's not super easy, but you can change your tax mm -hmm. ID number. Yep. You can change your name. If you even want to go so far as to change your name, you can certainly do that. You can change almost every other major aspect of your life. Hell, I can change my hair color tomorrow if I wanted to. And that's just because I'm too lazy to go to the store today. But you can do all <laughs> these things, right? The one thing that you cannot do in today's day and age, you can't change your DNA. You can't change those relationships that are built. So this was very much a static data set and static in the fashion that this stuff is not something that we can just cycle like we can with a lot of those other pieces of information that have got more fluidity to them. So like this is a much more critical thing than they're playing it off to be. And I mean, their attorneys are there to protect their business. So they're going to say whatever they have to to protect the interests of the company because that's their job. And you can't really overly fault them for trying to do their job. But 23andMe as a company really is the one that has the opportunity here to stand up and say, hey, we screwed up and we want to do our best to try and make this better in whatever fashion we can. Granted, at this point, what with most of these hacks, once data is exfiltrated, let's be honest, the cat's out of the bag. There's really no putting it back in. There's no honor amongst thieves. These groups often go after one another. They go after anybody that they can financially benefit from. Even if they told you they're going to delete the data set, they're not going to. There's too much financial interest in this game on the dark side of things to do the honorable, to do the right thing. So this data is now, it's out there. It's part of the public realm. Not legally, but it is. And it will continue to propagate around the realm, like you said, amongst others on the dark web, amongst other private parties, amongst other data aggregators to a point where it's just, it's going to be ubiquitous. It's going to be everywhere and we're gonna have to deal with the fallout of this and whatever future ramifications come from it for the foreseeable future yeah a couple of things i want to mention there first of all as, as an attorney i do want to say that there's something to be said for representing your client and representing your client's best interest however there is also 
an ethical obligation that every lawyer has, regardless of their client, to the representations they make. Now, it does not appear as though the letter was a directly inaccurate statement based on the law they were citing. And they did limit their definition to pecuniary harm, which means financial. But I do think that there was probably some obligation. If you're going to say that users were not harmed, I think you probably need to, (laughs) I guess an acknowledgement needs to be made that this information can harm in, in ways other than financially in a direct fashion, but also can possibly in the future be used to cause financial harm. That said, we're out of time on this topic for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and listened to us rant about how frustrated we can be when companies poorly handle data breaches and poorly handle the information they have been trusted with. There are, as Ryan mentioned, a lot of companies who are doing the right thing when these breaches occur and are even doing the right thing before the breaches occur by improving their security. We have to have better approaches to what happens when these breaches happen. When data is stolen, companies need to do better than 23andMe did in our collective opinion here in this particular case. If you enjoy this episode, please share it on social media. Our advertising is word of mouth and we rely on you to share your favorite episodes and let people know who might benefit from this information. You can follow us on fearlessparanoia.com or any of your favorite podcasting platforms. On behalf of Fearless Paranoia, I'm Brian. And I'm Ryan. And we'll see you next time.